Welcome, welcome everyone to another episode of Tech Me Out podcast. Um, today episode is on um, the bright side of legal automation. Now our guest today is Fraser. Um, so Fraser, could you talk to, um, to us a bit what you do in Legal Utopia and what motivated you in taking this journey? Sure, yeah. Um, so essentially I, I built um, Legal Utopia, which is a technology company um, and we help uh, businesses and individuals uh, identify a precise legal problem. Uh, and we do that through a mobile application um, without any human involvement, but the user. Um, and it utilizes uh, machine learning to both assist with the diagnosis process of the legal problem, um, as well as learn from that process. Um, so it's very much uh, like you would go to a GP for a medical problem um, but in this case, it's a, it's a legal one. Yeah, that's amazing. Congratulations. Um, and what are the challenges that you come across while um, creating that app? Uh, many. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I think um, you sort of face every type of different problem when you're trying to do something new. And um, everything from sort of um, data availability and its quality. Um, being able to create a whole new concept and process that hasn't been done before um, takes a lot of trial and error. Um, and it, even down to explaining the solution itself is sometimes challenging um, when it's, it's something that's quite a new concept. Um, so yeah, I face just about every challenge, but um, we've been lucky enough to doing it four years now. Um, so we, we seem to have been overcoming those challenges. Yeah, that's great. Um, I guess that a lot of people um, are afraid about legal tech replacing lawyers and um, your app. What do, you, what do you think about that, about um, the fear of automation? Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, it's mostly been um, displaced now in terms of the fear around replacing lawyers. Um, it, it's, it's just not gonna happen. Um, not in the in the main sense anyway. Um, so I, I was just sort of saying that. I mean, it, we've displaced the fear now. I think uh, I don't yeah. think many people think that um, lawyers are really going to be replaced. Um, I think um, what's happened is is people have realised um, much more over the last year that people want to interact with other people, um, and that will always be required in in the process of delivering legal services. Just not um, the, the legal element itself, really. Um, that, that can be automated in terms of process and procedure. So, uh, thank you. Um, now we can talk about the, um, the elephant in the room, uh, which is fairness and transparency in machine learning. Um, how do you overcome, if any, the issue of biases on your software? Um, and how important are these to guarantee access to justice? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an interesting point. Um, we, we actually um, done one of the first direct collaborations with um, the Information Commissioner's Office and um, we were supported with um, legal input from Norton Rose Fulbright. And you know, the whole process in terms of building a machine learning algorithm um, 
and trying to consider you know, fairness and transparency, um, they're rather broad concepts and you're applying it to a new concept. So um, our approach has been that one, when we were developing, we developed sort of the university um, and they set out a sort of ethics protocol um, that was sort of applied throughout our data acquisition process um, and then how we treated that data and what we did with it. Um, and then following on from that, we decided as a business to extend that in, in a limited sense um, to basically require us as a, as a board on, on the company to pause and think about certain different elements that we think particularly apply uh, when it comes to ethics. Um, and, and that sort of feeds into fairness and transparency. Um, and it's, it's a very challenging thing to do um, when you're delivering a commercial product. Um, that's a new concept because you're, you're trying to both educate your end user, your client, on what you're actually doing and how you're doing it, whilst trying to, you know, trying to make sure that even though they don't understand the precise technological aspects, they have some sort of trust or reliance on it. Um, it's much like you know when you buy a car, um, you, you, you've got trust and reliance that the machine's going to work, um, not specifically how it works. Uh, you know you've got to put fuel in it um, and make sure you maintain it. But you know otherwise, um, you're sort of relying on one of the mechanics to work. Okay, and that's a good way to start, which is um, a very uh, no one has done that before. So um, that's a very good way to start. Um, uh, do you have any um, thoughts about what is going to lead you or regarding to fairness and transparency in machine learning? Yeah, um, on transparency and, and, and fairness in, in machine learning, I think it really comes down to the feedback we get from users and, and how we capture that and how we interpret the data from live users of, of the software itself. Um, yeah. And that's sort of always been our um, position to sort of um, record, learn and then adapt from that. Um, it's very difficult um, to, to sort of say we're fair or, or we're transparent when it's something new. Um, it's something that we have to sort of understand our clients or our users' interpretation of what's fair and what's transparent and then adapt to that and opposed to the other way around. Okay. Um, and regarding the biases, do you think your software has any um, biases? Even we know that um it is embedded in the system to, um and it can happen um what do you think about that yeah i mean the the the, the, the software itself is programmed to be biased in one sense or the other right i mean and we we train the software itself to particularly the, the machine learning grounds to be biased towards one point or the other in order to reach an outcome um the, the, the question is, 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 is that bias um, a negative one? Um, and, and is it unlawful, um, to be frank? Um, and, and that's a challenging point as well. Um, it's, it's one of those other things that you have to, to monitor. Um, in, in our case, um, I think the, the, the application of machine learning is, is overstated. Um, it's a very, very niche, precise application of machine learning. Um, and 
there are concerns around um, negative biases um, when it comes to, for instance, um, somebody um, describing their problem. Now we know, for instance, that different demographics have different dialects and therefore um, interpretation of words is different based on those different regions. Um, could the classification algorithm um, apply um, its way of thinking um, differently based on those dialects and therefore bias one part of a demographic against another? Um, that's something we have to watch out for um, and something we have to sort of interpret from the data. Um, but it's not something that you can sort of oops, like pre preclude immediately and not and, and prevent. Um, it's something you have to respond to. Yeah. Um, very good, thank you. Um, so continue, continuing, um, you are the head of legal innovation at University of Westminster. Um, how are you bridging the gap between technology and law in education? Mm. Mm. Yeah, so I mean, I actually um, started um, getting Westminster Law School at the University of Westminster to um, think about injecting legal technologies as a topic into the curriculum uh, back yeah. in 2016. And it's now 2021. And um, we've still yet to deliver um, something comprehensive, but, but we will be. Um, I think it's really, really important that if students, um, whether it be at undergraduate or postgraduate level, are investing so much money in a degree, um, it should be something that is, is tailored towards employment, but also towards a career. Um, and you, you're going to need to know um, what the you know, legal industry is going to look like in 20, 30, 40, 50 years, because that's how long you're going to spend in the, in, in the industry as a, as a career. Um, so really my work with, with Westminster is around how do we import um, not only legal technology, as a topic, um, but also import the skills and delivery of our courses um, to bring students up to speed with what's happening both in industry now and, and what is going to happen in the coming years. And I think one thing we've learned from the last year is um, you, you can never sort of be fully prepared. And it's almost a good thing, I think, that many universities haven't quite done as much um, on legal technology just yet because um, we've just had a whole shift change in what you know, work looks like now, um, in, in particular professional services. Um, and I think that will really heavily inform um, this, this topic of, of law and technology. And um, it will really change how universities approach um, courses. And rightly so. Um, it's the time to do that. Um, so how did you create Legaltopia? You, you finished university, I guess, at um, uh, Westminster. Uh, you did law. Um, and then you created Legaltopia. I read that you did something with Mackenzie Friends. You, um, how, how did you come about the idea of Legaltopia? Yeah, so I mean, uh, Legaltopia, um, I actually um, uh, set up in August 2017. So I was actually... I was actually going into my third year um, as an undergraduate um, at Westminster. Um, and um, the whole concept back then was um, 
really born out of experience uh, in, in court helping people, which was around, um, you know, identifying the client's problem um, from the limited information that they had uh, and then directing them on what they could do next. Um, and when I was doing that, um, I would be looking over the paperwork whilst they explained their problem. Um, and they were also, everybody had a, had a, a smartphone and I was really sort of perplexed with, with why I needed to do this when they could just be doing it on their phone. And um, they, they didn't need me, they, they, could have, they could have used a software application to tell them what their problem is and what they should do next. Um, and that's where the, the idea is really born. Um, and then from there, we actually, um, me and an investor, um, pulled together Legal Utopia. Um, and then we sort of went out to find more money uh, and we got that from, from other investors um, and the EU. And from there, we sort of commissioned a research project um, with the University of Westminster um, to sort of see whether the concept of a software application um, identifying a legal problem and then providing support following that is actually possible. And, and, and that's what we um, subsequently done for, for the next 15 months. Wow, um, that is amazing. <laughs> um, so you have certainly achieved quite a lot as a young professional. Um, what are the tips that you give to young graduates and how do you see the future in legal tech? Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, graduates now probably have it a lot easier um, to, to get into to legal technology than I did. Um, or, or others at, at, at my stage, um, because you know, so much has changed in five years. Um, you know, people aren't um, anti-tech as much as they were five years ago, or you know, like we were talking about before on you know fear of being replaced. Um, you know, the, f the first conversation I had around um, what I was trying to do in the research with, with the partner at the firm was you know the immediate reaction of uh, you know you're replacing us. Um, and, you know, if I have that conversation now, um, you know, people think it's, it's, it's a brilliant idea, brilliant concept, um, and, and how you know, they can see it apply to the market now. Um, so I think you know, just in being able to have a conversation, I think is, is very easy now, um, particularly for, for, for graduates who sort of get out of academic um, circles and, and get into, into industry. Um, I guess, um, looking back, um, I would have loved to have known everything I know now and to, to do things at sort of warp speed. Um, but, uh, you know, you, you've got to sort of get down into the dirty stuff and, and, and learn it from the ground up. And um, I think you learn um, quite a lot by going on the entrepreneurial journey opposed to sort of a you know, generic training contract. Um, you know, you can really get the best investment in yourself um, than any employer will ever give you by setting up your own business and, and making it work. Um, so yeah, if, if, if I was to say anything to, to anybody that's got a concept that they want to sort of deliver um, is to, to give it a go. Um, there's no better time to do it when you're young. Yeah, so just tell everyone to build an app. Yeah, well, build, build anything. Um, but God knows we need, we need lots of solutions for lots of very big problems. So. Um, the more solutions we have, the better. Yeah, I agree. Um, do you have anything? So I guess that um, Legal Talk is more for solicitors, 
are you thinking of doing anything regarding um, barristers and their work? Yeah, we are. Um, so we're we're doing some interesting stuff um, with um, solicitors, but also barristers and legal aid practitioners. Um, so barristers are an interesting one because um, not very many consumers um, or, or business consumers are really aware of the ability to access public access barristers and the fact that actually in, in most cases they're cheaper um, and then more specialist in, in terms of their legal knowledge so depending on your problem type um, and the expertise level you need um, it can actually be cheaper um, to access public access barristers um, so yeah it is something that we're looking to to work on to make them more accessible and to raise awareness of them actually yeah so for example for the lpc there has been um an evolution to um reflect the the modern world as in there's the sqe now which allows more people to um access and be solicitors however with um barristers yes it would be great to have um a cheaper options for everyone to access um um legal representation accords however i feel like there should be a reform on um the bar and how to get access to the bar because it's especially expensive as most people know and um how how how, how can we bridge having um low-cost um barristers but the education is still extremely expensive what are your thoughts on that yeah well i think that's a problem with with two things really one is is the market is saturated um you know there's so many people that want to get into the legal um sector in the traditional sense i solicitor or barrister um the problem with the the barrister's profession is um you know the, their range of work i you know, conduct litigation and advocacy um, is is rather limited now um, and you see a lot of practitioners um, going into mediation and arbitration to subsidize their work and um, so you know if, if a student is looking to um, develop a career in, in the bar um, they're probably also going to need to think about becoming qualified as an arbitrator and a mediator to to sort of widen out the work um, there is also the, the point that you know I think we um, in terms of um, you know, students and graduates um, they really need to think about what you know the demand is for the work that they're going for um, because at the end of the day they are spending tens of thousands of pounds on private education um, they, they need to have more certainty in terms of you know are there going to be job prospects afterwards and I think um, the traditional legal work is going to be difficult to get into um, going forward again because the market is so saturated with you know a number of qualified people um reforming the process i don't think is going to massively change things um not in again the traditional sense um but the sqe um changes could be um quite significant in terms of enabling people to actually access um practical work experience and, and get getting that in early so they understand whether they enjoy the work that they're doing or not. Yeah, I agree. So uh, for my final question, uh, what would you say to your 18 years old self? Um, do it faster and do it cheaper. <laughs> <laughs>
Okay. Um, that's interesting. How come do you say uh, they're fascinated with people? Um, I, I think um, when I started um, out on, on particularly the legal utopia journey, um, I had a thinking that people would do what they say they would do. <laughs> And um, so I, I think that sort of was a, was a, was a personal um, uh, sense that I had that I placed a lot of reliance on, on what people would say they was going to do. Um, and, and particularly in the legal profession, uh, in the finance sector and so on. And um, I think you learn from experience that that's not the case. Um, generally, um, people don't do what they say they're going to do. Um, and it means that you end up um, needing to find plan B um, quite a lot. So um, with the knowledge that I have now, um, you can sort of almost filter down your network to people that don't do anything, people that just talk and people that do do stuff. Um, and I think it's, you know, if, if I just had that network of doers, um, then I would have done things a lot faster and a lot cheaper than I did um, over the last five years. Okay. Well, thank you for joining us today. Uh, we were very happy to have you.